0: Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast, do we really need the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, considering their messaging is always mixed? Where are Ontario pharmacies at this stage of the pandemic? Are we not interested in building any more roads in Ontario? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show Podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
1: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Now, Nassi says Pfizer and Moderna are the preferred vaccines. What? More mixed messages from the land of Fuddle Duddle. How are you feeling now, Dad? Oh, it's the Scott Thompson Home Show. here's Scott Thompson.
0: feeling a little woozy I don't know I got a thing growing out of the top of my head I think now uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes, uh, week number 59. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. You can send us a note via the website, ScottThompson at 900 CHML.com. All right. Another, uh, uh, bizarre show coming up and more continued mixed messaging. Uh, from NACI and, and basically, uh, coming out and saying that the preferred vaccines were Pfizer and Moderna. You have to wonder if anyone at NASI, even though they have their mandate, uh, have any idea how much they are adding to the confusion and adding to, uh, the anxiety that Canadians are going uh, through while they're sitting up in their little ivory tower, uh, making a call. Um, <laughs> You have to wonder why the left hand does not know what the right hand is doing uh, inside the federal government when NACI is giving uh, conflicting messages to uh, that of Health Canada and uh, pretty much every other uh, official health official that's coming on and telling us to get the the first vaccine that becomes available to us. We will talk about that, obviously. This is a clip from uh, Dr. Shelley Deeks. Dr. Shelley Deeks. And this is in regard to uh, uh news conference yesterday in which she talked about uh, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine and then the new Johnson & Johnson, which, uh, of course, is on its way and uh, has been approved for those uh, over 30. But here's, uh, again, adding to mixed messaging from what we're hearing from doctors in Health Canada saying, get the first vaccine that you can get your hands on. Here's what Dr. Shelley Deeks had to say from NASI.
2: So what uh, what we're saying is that, and what we've said all along is that the mRNA vaccines are the preferred vaccine. Um, and yet, um, given, that, given the epidemiology, um, the viral vector vaccines are very effective vaccines, but there is a a safety signal, a safety risk. And the issue with the safety signal is that although it's it's very rare, um, it is very serious. And so individuals need to um, have an informed choice to be vaccinated with the first vaccine that's available or to wait for an mRNA vaccine, they need to be aware that those are the the options available to them
0: did anybody realize that they should wait for the one uh, that they think is best for them? Because the message that I've been getting is get the first vaccine that you can possibly get. And, you know, you have to ask yourself uh, at what point does the federal government get a handle on this? And I can understand these two agencies are coming at this from two different sides of the discussion, and, and I respect that, and I think that's a great idea. But when it comes to the messaging that comes out the other end it seems that nasi is absolutely oblivious to the confusion that they are causing uh you know when they sit up in their tower and 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 spout off things that are completely different than what uh medical experts are telling us and what our politicians are telling us so who do you believe do you believe government or do you believe Nassi? Which, by the way, it's all the federal government, Health Canada and NACI are all federal uh, government agencies. So at what point does the communications expert take control of this and say, okay, we've got to hone this message, we've got to put this all in context, instead of everybody just, okay, this is what we have to do, so that's all we're going to do. And again, it's one-dimensional academics, and and and, and again, I, I get it. That's their expertise. That's the advice they're giving uh, uh, giving us. But on the other hand, it's confusing because it's different from what everyone else is saying. All right. Where are we with vaccine, uh, especially with Ontario pharmacies? Uh, remember, Ontario pharmacies are very much a part of the AstraZeneca rollout, uh, and and yours truly got his, as did uh, the Prime Minister and the Premier and, and so on and so forth in that age group. So uh, where do we go now that the AZ is running out? What happens? Uh, what replaces that? What, what is the role of the pharmacy moving forward? Let's bring in Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacy. Association and is with us now, Justin. Thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
3: I'm well, and thanks for having me on.
0: Uh, before we get started, Justin, your comments on what we're seeing with NACI and Health Canada, and again, uh, alternating messages coming out of the two.
3: Well, I'm going to make a proposal, and that is no more NACI press conferences. <laughs> I think the, the two words, right? I mean, I think the two words that come to to my mind uh, that describe this is disappointed and irresponsible, um, causing unnecessary concerns and confusion within the public. And it's been a yo-yo effect since AstraZeneca was approved in late February by Health Canada, whether it's the age restrictions changing, mixed messages. And at the end of the day, I understand transparency is paramount, and we very much support that. Um, But let's let the data do the talking. One out of 100,000 cases, serious case, no doubt, uh, blood clots, is a very, very low risk. And I think the mixed uh, communication that's coming out from NASI is causing people to be more vaccine hesitant, potentially introducing a dangerous precedent where people may not get a second dose when it is a safe and effective vaccine. So that's our position, uh, and we're dealing with that fallout right now at our stores where people are calling and asking these questions.
0: So where are Ontario pharmacies right now with what we are? Obviously, uh, very much a part of the big AstraZeneca push uh, of a few weeks ago. Uh, is there still AstraZeneca lying around? Is that is that still being administered in pharmacies?
3: Well, the good news is we're about 97% through the inventory that's out into community pharmacies. We had 1,400 participating, uh, and it's been a tremendous success in terms of getting those shots in arms. Uh, The challenge, of course, is that there is a supply interruption. We have no line of sight uh, or certainty when we'll get replenishment for those second doses. So in the meantime, we are launching uh, two pilots. One launched last week for... Pfizer being introduced to pharmacies. We have eight pharmacies and hotspots in Toronto that received the Pfizer vaccine last Friday. And we have eight in Peel hotspots. And we're going to expand that later this week to include even more pharmacies uh, because it has been a success. Most of those uh, got 150 doses and have already administered all of them. And another good news is that we're doing a Moderna pilot where we'll have uh, 60 Uh, pharmacies participating uh, in five different public health units and our hope would be to be able to expand this pretty rapidly.
0: How difficult is it going to be to get the Pfizer and Moderna into pharmacies? We know certainly there's a a refrigeration issue. What do you have to do to uh, or does the average pharmacy have the capability of doing this?
3: They have the capability. They are doing it in other provinces. Uh, There's at least four provinces that have all three vaccines into distribution through pharmacies. The U.S. started with pharmacies and Pfizer. So the capability exists, the infrastructure, the sophistication of the supply chain from distribution to storage at the pharmacy. But it is more complex. There's no question handling and managing Pfizer which is a less stable vaccine. You can't shake it or drop it, and it has to be uh, stored at 2 to 8 degrees when it's thawed for only five days before it uh, spoils. So that gives you a, a window of booking those appointments. Um, it does receive uh, to the pharmacy. It's delivered at minus 20, so it's in a frozen state. So the clock of the five days starts uh, when that hits the, the pharmacy floor.
0: Uh, so uh, obviously now you're you're winding through that initial uh, batch of AstraZeneca. There doesn't seem to be any on the horizon. Any idea um, as obviously you ramp up for Pfizer and Moderna? Any idea whether the Johnson and Johnson will move in and replace the A Z?
3: It's possible. I mean, we we know a couple things are happening. One, the federal government's having. Uh, and engaging in active discussions with President Biden and his team on that $60 unused sitting in a warehouse in the U.S. of AstraZeneca. Much of that will go to India, but there should be some left over, and and the planning is underway to replenish for the second doses of those that have received the first uh, dose of AstraZeneca. The other thing that might happen, and it's quite interesting, there's research underway in the U.K. that might be available in the next uh, 30 days or so That is looking at the efficacy of mixing first and second doses with Mm -hmm. viral vector uh, like a a J&J or AstraZeneca vaccine with an mRNA vaccine. So that may be one of the solutions if the AstraZeneca vaccine isn't available in terms of supply.
0: How concerned are you, Justin, about administering that second dose to those of us that are waiting?
3: Well, I received the first dose myself. So from a safety and efficacy standpoint, I have no concerns. And I continue to believe confidently in getting the vaccine, the first vaccine that's offered to you. I think the only concern we have is just around that uh, predictability of supply. So hopefully the supply comes up uh, and replenishes in that window that we have up to 12 to 16 weeks to um, administer the second dose. And if not, you know, there are Uh, positive signs coming out of that research that we will have other options but uh, our goal remains steadfast in making sure everybody gets that second dose and is fully immunized.
0: Uh, uh, When do you expect the research uh, to be available on mixing of the doses?
3: Yeah, I think what I've read is it could be available within the next 30 days. Um, and uh, there does seem to be some positive signs and results from, from that mix between the two. Um, I'm not entirely sure the exact timing, but uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. And if it does have um, you know, strong evidence to support that mix, uh, I think that will put us in a very strong position.
0: So advice for those uh, looking for a shot. Can we still book through pharmacies? Is that still the way to go or a way to go rather?
3: Yeah, I mean, we're a complementary channel for sure. So, you know, obviously with the public health clinics and and primary care and pharmacy, um, you know, go online and and try to book appointments. We are going to be rolling out this Pfizer and Moderna in many more pharmacies over the next uh, couple of weeks. So that'll be uh, another option for people. And uh, hopefully we get more AstraZeneca as well.
0: All right, Justin Bates has been with us, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacist Association, uh, talking about where we are with COVID-19 and, of course, available vaccines. Justin, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thank you. All right, um, uh, Michael LeCouture from Global News uh, with the Prime Minister at his news conference, which is going on now. Here's a sample of that.
1: Prime Minister Michael LeCouture with Global
4: National. I just wanted to come back on Nasty sort of doubling down on this idea of preferred vaccines. As one of the 1.7 million Canadians who got one of the not preferred vaccines, uh, I wanted to know, what do you think of that, first of all? And second of all, we're hearing from doctors that are saying that what NACI is doing right now is actually dangerous because it's going against public health guidelines. Do you think that NACI still really serves a purpose here?
1: Um, First of all, let me remind everyone that every vaccine administered in Canada is safe and effective uh, as evaluated by Health Canada. The safety of Canadians is first and foremost, and we have seen the tragic impacts of COVID-19 all across the country, and vaccines are uh, one of the key tools to reduce uh, the deaths uh, and the vulnerability of Canadians to COVID-19. That's why uh, we are continuing to recommend uh, to everyone uh, to get vaccinated as quickly as possible so we can get through this so we can see uh, case numbers uh, drive down and we can end with so many of these restrictions. I am very, very happy that I got uh, my shot uh, and I'm encouraging everyone uh, to get vaccinated uh, because that's what Health Canada and all experts are highlighting is necessary to get through this.
0: What about the question? What about NACI? That's a great, breathy answer, Mr. Prime Minister, but it does not answer the question. And the question was, what about NACI? Is it still relevant, considering every time they hold a press conference, they throw the, the country into a tailspin? All right, let's move on. Let's bring in Thomas Kate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, and is with us now. Thomas, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
5: Uh, yeah, I'm doing well, thanks, Scott. Sounds like you're pretty fired up there.
0: Uh, Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, just said he hopes that is the last news conference that NACI holds, and he calls uh, their comments disappointing and irresponsible. What are your thoughts? That's the head of the Ontario Pharmacists Association
5: yeah definitely we're you know getting mixed messages coming out and uh that's always confusing for everyone and uh you know given where we at we're at with the the pandemic and and the vaccine rollout it's it's really we're at a time where we need some very consistent messaging and messaging that doesn't sort of confuse but also doesn't stop people from getting vaccinated and uh and that's in some ways that's what's uh concerning about the mixed messaging right now is that you know people might say well uh, if they can't figure it figure it out why why will we go and get vaccinated but and that's obviously the wrong thing that we want we want as many people as possible to be vaccinated as soon as possible
0: so is this information from nasi disappointing and irresponsible in your view uh i
5: I think it's in some ways you might have touched on it before where you know it's from an academic perspective and a technical perspective i think their messaging is 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 correct in if you say what's preferred you know if if preferred is based on what's effective and yeah sure the uh, Moderna and Pfizer ones definitely seem to be more effective but if you if your purpose and your goal is to vaccinate as many people as possible and you know you've got a, a range of vaccines available and they're all effective uh to what's is what is a normal level of effectiveness then then it that it isn't you know a, uh that those comments aren't as helpful uh because the you know the preferred is means in that situation is to you know roll out the vaccines as, as widely as possible whatever whatever they are so so from that perspective you know what I'd say is it it's it's definitely not helpful
0: uh can you would you be surprised if people in, in, interpret this by thinking, well, you know, this is all we got, so take this. I mean, maybe the government's wrong and NASI is right here. Uh, again, this is just creating uh this is just creating more confusion. Does this message which or this news conference that happened yesterday is that helping at all? Yeah.
5: yeah. Well, in a lot of ways, you know, the from a um, media perspective, the the NAS- NASI folks probably don't need to be in the media at all because, given their role is providing advice to the provinces on on what you know the provinces should do from a rollout perspective, you know it's really up to the provinces to decide whether or not they you know go with those with that advice or not. So so in a lot of ways, from a public public perception and and Public messaging perspective, their, their advice really doesn't need to be sort of publicised as widely because it's really what's what's the impact for, for the general public, and that's really coming through the provinces. So, so from that perspective, I would say uh, you know that it's probably best not to have uh, news news conferences by by that that group because it, particularly if the provinces and other agencies have different messaging, it just confuses the heck out of everyone.
0: Well, again, I can totally understand the role of NACI and Health Canada and how they're different, and it's great that there are those two bodies coming at it from uh, uh, two different uh, angles, two different dimensions, but it really is one-dimensional academics, and then doctors are communicating that. Like there, There doesn't seem to be a communications expert there, uh, making sure that by the time this hits the public it makes sense
5: mm. uh, yeah, I definitely agree, and you know it, it gets down to sort of differing differing goals or differing purposes, and uh, ultimately you know with you know what's what's the front line what's what's actually happening for for the public is really what's important and so, so in a lot of ways you know these are sort of in some ways technical discussions, technical debates that we can, in some ways, could be have held behind closed doors whereas we're versus uh, having a more of a consistent message and consistent approach because, you know, again, we don't want people to be uh, scared away from getting vaccinated.
0: What should government, the prime minister, what have you, how should they be interpreting this information that has now created chaos, more chaos, what should now be the message from government
5: yeah part part of the problem is that we've had so many messaging so many messages over so so much time I think it's sort of hard to sort of wipe the slate clean and say say let's start let's start fresh because like I think from a from a communication perspective there there is one there's a sort of a psychological thing called anchoring, where whatever the first messages are that we hear, or or we we seem to anchor to those, and then we can keep comparing against those. And so, so that's that's a that's a hard part because we've had so many. We we we're just so I think people are so confused, and so so in a lot of ways, what they probably need to do is say, let's have a central one one key person key key. Uh, Message giver versus multiple message givers, and that that would be one way to try and, you know, funnel the and, and keep the message concise and, and consistent.
0: Do you think things will change? Do you think there'll be fallout from this? Because we've heard a, a few saying they shouldn't be holding press conferences anymore. They they're they're just creating chaos. That you know, again, this could be, as you've suggested, done uh, in an internal meeting, and then a final uh, guideline be put out. Do you think we're going to see changes here, or do you think this, uh, the uh, you know, the continuing, continuing, revolving messages will continue?
5: Well, what I'd hope is that uh, the the government, both at provincial and and federal levels would sort of really get the message uh back, back to them that that this is all confusing the heck out of everyone and and we really need they really need to have a very concise uh and consistent message and and really having multiple agencies sort of getting out there and saying different things is, is not helpful so so hopefully there will be a change from that perspective like obviously you don't want the, the various agencies and bodies not doing their job but we need to be able to have that coordinated in a way that doesn't uh, confuse and and uh, and potentially disrupt and the message and disrupt the, the vaccine rollout
0: um do you think that nasi has any idea of the confusion that they're causing. I mean, I could, you know, I think of, we played the one minute clip of Dr. Shelley Deeks. Uh, is, is she rethinking this today and thinking, my goodness, here we go again. We've only created more confusion as opposed to really providing any sort of other information that we didn't already know.
5: Yeah, definitely. You know, hindsight is, is a, uh, is an important thing. And, you know, I would like to think that uh, you know any any public agency, you know, before they have a media conference, sort of think through what what is the potential impact of what we're going to say, and and how does what we say uh, connect with and coordinate with what other people are saying on the on the same issue. So, so so definitely, I think it's uh, providing a a good good uh, you know what we'd in academia call a teaching moment, and and hope hope that. Uh, that uh people sort of learn from it and and just say yeah how can we coordinate better and and maybe let's not have a press conference today maybe let's uh someone else do that
0: it's interesting, Thomas, you said hindsight, and this has happened like three to four times um you you really and and I really think the public and and certainly the media and and other experts as we had from the Ontario pharmacist Association are really questioning what the advantage is to having nasi speak,
5: yeah, yeah, definitely you know based on what you know I understand their role to be i I would say that you know. Them having press conferences is probably not really needed in the whole system. So, so then you have to say, well, why why, why is that occurring? And uh, and and particularly if the messaging that they're putting out might be uh, inconsistent with the other messaging. So, so you know that from that perspective, you know I'd, I'd hope that uh, there's a, a change in the way that uh, the whole. Uh, media conferencing and you know dueling media conferences uh, work, works out into the future
0: uh all right let's move on from from the mixed messaging uh part of this uh, there's been chatter about mixing doses and shortening the intervals between the first and second dose as it appears more supply is set to roll in through uh, may and june your thoughts on that uh, and we better yeah, hope yeah. there's lots of Pfizer and Moderna because you can be darn sure there aren't a lot of people going to be lining up for AZ and J&J. Do you think there's going to be a fallout from this?
5: Yeah. Yeah, well, definitely, you know, given that there's sort of the different sort of ways people can sign up for for uh, getting a vaccine, uh, then, you know, this might potentially push more people to the system that that uh, provides the, the Pfizer and Moderna versus mm-hmm. the AstraZeneca or J and J, but uh, you know overall, what a you know I'd really like to see is that that uh, that time frame is is reduced between the two doses, because in a lot of ways the the four month uh, period is is really also a bit, of a, a bit of a hail mary. You know, do we will it? Is it really appropriate or not? Given given the uh, Moderna and Pfizer. Uh, recommended periods of three and four weeks, you know, and so four months is quite a substantial uh, length past that. So, so anything that we can do to shorten that, to to hope to then uh, have a, have these vaccines more effective, and that you know that's uh, really good. Uh, and I, but but in regard to mixing, uh, I, I don't know. It's gonna that's going to be interesting. I would think that. You, you probably wouldn't mix the, you know, the vector virus ones, what's the AstraZeneca, uh, with the Moderna and Pfizer, what's the mRNA ones, because of the different uh, mechanisms. But but uh, you know maybe maybe a mixture of Pfizer and Moderna uh, might might work out. Uh, but but yeah, let's let's see what the what the uh, evidence says from from the UK.
0: What advice do you have for those that are listening right now and just shaking their head?
5: Uh, what I would say is that uh, just you try try to block all that out and uh, say, would, would I rather uh, have COVID or, or not have COVID? And if I, you know, obviously the answer is no, I don't want to get COVID. And so one way, effective way to get to not get COVID is to get vaccinated. So uh, let's, you know, go out and get vaccinated with whatever vaccine is available uh, and try and do it as soon as possible.
0: Thomas Tenkate with us, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University. Thomas, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well.
5: Uh, You too, thanks. Thanks very much, Scott. I really appreciate it. Have a great day.
0: You too. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We certainly know about the accusations flying around the Canadian military. Obviously, a study done five years ago and uh, suggestions were made. Uh, Clearly, none of those uh, were taken seriously. Uh, Over 580 accusations of sexual assault uh, since then. Uh, And, of course, now uh, hearing about General Jonathan Vance, uh, former uh, chief of, of, uh, of defense, uh, and and the allegations against him uh, at the very, very, very top and uh, obviously uh, calls for uh, the Prime Minister to do something certainly uh, in regard to his Chief of Staff who apparently knew about all of this but didn't bring it to uh, the Prime Minister's attention apparently the Prime Minister saying he didn't know it was a Me Too uh, issue uh, well why wouldn't you ask then what is the issue and then you can find out if it's a Me Too or something else uh, anyway, so clearly uh, the feminist prime minister, self-proclaimed feminist prime minister, is uh, dodging this uh, like a bullet. And obviously, it seems with uh, the falling of General Vance and the very top in command that uh, there's going to be some heads rolling somewhere uh, in this conversation. Let's bring in MP James Bezen, conservative shadow minister for national defense and with us now. Uh, James, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. Do you, do you buy that the Prime Minister didn't know about this? Not at all, and that's why we have
6: a Opposition Day motion in front of the House uh, as we speak, uh, and uh, it's calling on the Prime Minister to fire Katie Telford as Chief of Staff. Uh, if we are to believe the Prime Minister and that he didn't know it was a Me Too moment and that the allegation was sexual harassment in nature, then Katie Telford... Uh, didn't do her job as chief of staff to the Prime Minister to inform uh, Justin Trudeau about these serious allegations against the top soldier in the land, that this could compromise national security. And uh, she also is the one that orchestrated the cover-up of these allegations against Jonathan Vance for the past three years. But really, this is about calling Justin Trudeau's bluff, because I don't believe Katie Telford didn't, informed the Prime Minister about these allegations, that they were sexual harassment. All the communications between the Prime Minister's office and the Privy Council office uh, all talked about this being sexual harassment or sexual in nature. So this is a chance for Justin Trudeau to come clean or to do the right thing and fire Katie Telford if she act, you know, definitely withheld that information from him.
0: Uh, he said he didn't realize it was a "me too" uh, issue. That being said, uh, Jonathan Vance was given a raise and an extension. Would that have not come up during that time? It seems like that would be the appropriate time to do some checking.
6: We've asked this question over and over again at the National Defense Committee. We've we've talked to the former um, Privy Council Clerk, which was uh, Michael Warnick. We've talked to uh, Elder Marquez, who used to be a senior advisor to. Justin Trudeau, and they all said, "Yeah, we should have done something." But you know, they had these allegations. March 1st, 2018, the Minister of National Defense, Harjit Sajjan, pushed away the evidence instead of actually looking at it and acting upon it. And then they started an email exchange between and phone calls between. Sajan's chief of staff at the time, Zita Stravis, and Katie Telford, and, and brought in a number of different uh, members of the prime minister's office. And they decided to cover it up rather than to actually turn it over to authorities to investigate. And, you know, what you've already mentioned, Scott, is, is the most egregious part of, the, of this, is that they not only gave General Vance arrays and extended his contract three years, but they've left him in charge of Operation Honor. Yeah. The military's operation to stomp out sexual misconduct. And during that time, during the five and a half years that the Liberals have been in power, we have seen sexual assault increase under this government. And we it, it's occurring at a rate of one sexual assault every three days. This has to stop if we want to have a safe work environment. For the women and men who serve this nation. They take on enough risk as it is already as soldiers, sailors and air crew and for them to uh, be subjected to this type of harassment at work is unconscionable and this lays at the feet of Harjit Sajjan and Justin Trudeau for failing to take the proper action with General Vance in 2018.
0: So, uh, obviously, committee members meeting on this, and this was shut down yesterday. What happened yesterday, and why was that the case?
6: Well, we started a motion after we heard from Elder Marquez. We, we started a motion at committee last Friday uh, calling for Katie Telford to appear at committee to find out what she knew, from because we know that there was emails between her and the clerk of the Privy Council, the deputy clerk of the Cabinet, And with uh, Zita Stravis, who's Chief of Staff to Harjit Sajjan, we uh, wanted to call her uh, before committee and the Liberals filibustered and talked out the clock on Friday. Then yesterday, they cancelled our committee meeting. And it just proves that the Liberals are more interested in protecting one woman, Katie Telford, than actually protecting the women who serve us in uniform.
0: So what happens now? Where does this go, James.
6: Well, we have a vote coming up on our opposition day motion on having Katie Telford fired uh, uh, later today. Uh, and, of course, we will um, or it could be actually deferred till tomorrow, but we are going to have a vote on this. It looks like the block and the NDP are supporting the government on this motion. Uh, and we know that uh, we will at some point in time resume committee and uh, continue on with the debate of calling Katie Telford before the National Defense Committee. Our investigation at committee is not over. Uh, we have to get down to the bottom of who knew what. And what they did or did not do with that information. Uh, that's part of the uh, accountability factor. And then we have to get to the final um, stages of implementing change uh, in the Canadian Armed Forces so that our uh, brave men and women can serve with confidence that they will not be harassed uh, at work.
0: Uh, so, uh, do we know when these meetings will continue?
6: According to the chair of the uh, committee, uh, as uh, Karen McCrimmon said uh, in uh, question period yesterday, that we would uh, resume our uh, discussion on Friday. So she's pretty much uh, punted this down the road uh, for a week. And uh, it's it's the same thing what Liberals have been doing and what they brought forward as their response to sexual misconduct is let's do another study. Uh, Let's have another uh, Supreme Court justice look into sexual misconduct and write another report and kick the can down the road for uh, another year and a half past the next federal election. So uh, it's more liberal dithering, more liberal delays. And Meanwhile, the uh, members of the Canadian Armed Forces are crying out for results, not a report.
0: All right, MP, James Bazan with us, conservative shadow minister for national defense. Uh, Obviously, the uh, opposition and O'Toole calling for uh, Trudeau to get rid of his chief of staff over the handling of the Vance controversy and how much the prime minister knew of all of this. James, thanks for the time. Be well.
6: You too. Thanks a lot, Scott.
0: Uh, For years, people have talked about regulating the Internet and, you know, why does it get away scot-free? Well, traditional media pays, different regulations, some have none at all. Uh, And, of course, uh, as a result of that, Bill C-10, which uh, is a government's attempt to get a handle on all of this. But as soon as it came out, lots of uh, opposition uh simply because it, many thought that it was overreaching, went too far. Now the headline is, Federal uh, Feds plan to change Bill C-10 to make it crystal clear social media uploads will not be regulated. They're concentrating more on the larger companies. Let's bring in Michael Geis, law professor with the University of Ottawa and Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law, and is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
7: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
0: So tell everybody who may not be in the know, what is Bill C-10? Why is it such a bone of contention at this point?
7: Right. So Bill C-10, government introduced this back in the fall. And at the time, it was nominally about trying to ensure that the large streaming services, the Netflix and Disney's of the world, would make contribution to support the creation of Canadian content. And while there, I think, is some room for debate about whether or not we need to legislate that, the reality is... Uh, certainly, at least pre-COVID, there was never more money being spent on Canadian film and television production in Canada than right now. And in fact, much of it towards Canadian content. That was also at record numbers. And we know that a lot of that actually is coming from foreign services like Netflix and Disney. So it's not clear that there is an emergency here at all. But even if we set that aside, that was supposedly what the legislation was about and they excluded a lot of other kinds of content for example user-generated content the TikTok posts or youtube uh, videos that people might post but about a week and a half ago the government backtracked on that particular commitment and removed one of the safeguards they had in the legislation so that suddenly now all user-generated content would be treated like a program much like any program you might have on the radio or television all subject to regulation by the regulator, by the CRTC.
0: Why did they decide to go there?
7: Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I think it's worth noting that the Heritage Minister, Stephen Guibault, has not been uh, particularly coherent, I have to say, in terms of responding to that exact question. In fact, he's been asked repeatedly for support uh, as, as to explain why the government's done what it's done. And hasn't really been able to, I think, provide an effective answer. Uh, whereas department has intervened, they've tried to suggest that somehow this is about ensuring that there be some additional payments for music that appears on streaming, on services like YouTube. So users may post some music on YouTube, and, and they're saying that that ought to be captured. And so in the process, we need to capture user-generated content. What they're not saying when they say that, though, is that that's largely a copyright matter. In fact, that music is already paid for through licensing. So, what they're really looking for is some additional payments over the fact that this is appearing on YouTube. And in the process, they're saying, well, if the trade off is to regulate the speech and videos of millions of Canadians, that apparently is a trade off they're willing to make.
0: So, is this about uh, making sure the proper person gets paid for something, or is this about content regulation? Well,
7: it has nothing to do with whether or not the proper person gets paid. Um, In fact, the, the extent to which we're talking about being paid for usage of the work, that's already taking place. You wouldn't even need any of these reforms. This is about essentially trying to squeeze some additional dollars out of the large tech companies. Now, we could have done that through taxation. We could have simply said, you know what, let's make sure these companies pay their fair share of tax and we can use some of those revenues to go to support some of these kinds of programs. But instead, they're looking at what looks like more like a cross-subsidy model, where they're basically saying, well, we want this industry to support another industry. And they've had to kind of blow up some of the regulation, the Broadcasting Act, in order to do it. Um, And it's really opened the door to these kinds of new sorts of regulations that now extend well beyond um, just that basic notion of, let's say, let's make Netflix pay.
0: What is the solution here? Because, again, I think many Canadians will agree that there is a little bit of an unfair advantage here when it comes to the Netflixes of the world and such. What is the solution?
7: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I must admit I think there's a good debate as to whether or not there is a so-called unfair advantage. The reality is our existing broadcasters have all sorts of benefits, simultaneous substitution that lets them air Canadian commercials and must-carry rules that ensure the cable companies carry their channels, all kinds of advantages that the streaming services don't have. But even if we park that to the side and say, well, we still want them included, I think fundamentally, part of the problem is the government has tried to say that it's all the same. It doesn't matter whether you're a broadcaster or Netflix, you're all part of the same system. And so we can regulate you in much the same way. And I think ultimately, that's just not right. I mean, the truth is, there are differences between large internet services and conventional broadcasters. And that's not to say there shouldn't be rules to both. But saying trying to say that they should be the same rules doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so if what we really want is to say, "Hey, we want to make sure you make a contribution," then I think tax law is really the the most the easiest way to do it. And basically says we want you to pay more into Canada. We can make sure that taxes effectively do that, and then we can use the revenue to make sure it goes towards some of these kinds of programs. I'd also note that if there is a concern with these companies, and there should be some concerns with these companies, it's more in things like how they the data that they're collecting about us, and how they use that data, and whether or not they abuse use their market position because so many of them are so powerful yet the government hasn't really done anything on those fronts we haven't seen uh, them move forward with privacy legislation other than introducing it and then trying to bury it they haven't dealt with the competition issues that's really where i think they could make a more significant difference in the broader marketplace
0: uh they seem to have reversed this decision and, and now making it crystal clear as they say social media uploads won't be regulated what does that mean is that enough
7: well, I guess I believe it when I see it. They haven't introduced anything yet. Yeah. All we've had is a minister who is clearly facing an increasing amount of pressure. Back, you know, after for days saying there was nothing to see here suddenly saying, oh, OK, fine, maybe we will make some changes, and they say they'll make it clear. But, you know, until we see any sort of language, I think I think most of us are going to reserve judgment. And further, this is not the only concern that arises in the context of this bill. This touches on Canadian ownership requirements of broadcasters, whether Canadian performers are prioritized, touches on a whole range of things, even to the extent to which the CRTC could determine what you see in your feed on YouTube or TikTok as it starts injecting in Canadian content requirements into people's individual feeds. So even if they make some changes, it's not clear that uh, this is going to address all the concerns that have started to arise.
0: Why is this happening now? Is this getting lost in a pandemic?
7: Well, I think that the legislation was getting lost in the pandemic. I think it's a great question, and it's a good point. Uh, You know, I think this legislation was kind of somewhat stealthily and and, uh, steadily, I suppose, moving through the parliamentary process. There weren't a whole lot of people raising objections to it. Uh, I think it was this misstep, this extension even further of the law into something that nobody envisioned into getting into user-generated content that quite clearly has captured people's attention. And, you you know, you mentioned Canadians generally would be supportive of some amount of regulation. I think that's right. Uh, but I think that there isn't a, it isn't a limitless amount. I mean, I think that there is a price to be paid in every instance. There's always going to be policy trade-offs. And the message I think that we're hearing is that Canadians are comfortable, of course, with some amount of regulation of these companies. In fact, many would say it's a, it's a very important a necessity to do so, but not at any cost, not at the cost of, of our basic, basic free speech rights or freedom of expression rights.
0: Are we getting hung up on the whole Canadian content thing? I mean, I'm old enough to remember when and starting in music radio where, you know, obviously we have to play or had to play, still do, uh, 30% Canadian content. Uh and you know, y- y- you'd be naive to say that it didn't help the Canadian industry over time, but it's a different it's a different world now and and I've heard many producers, people that are uh in you know, in the industry of producing content that say there is really no Canadian content anymore. It's international content. Content. it may be a European production with a Canadian crew and an American this or another or whatever uh is there any real true Canadian content anymore when you're using uh you know the the uh the wares of others from around the world
7: yeah well I mean I think it's another really important point you know I think the definitions that we have used for what we say is Canadian content is one of the issues that we really ought to be re-examining because you're absolutely right that the way that it works right now is that there are all sorts of productions that have no real connection to Canada other than ticking a couple of boxes that suddenly get treated as Canadian, whereas all sorts of other content that certainly seem like they're telling Canadian stories about Canadian crews, they're filmed in Canada, but for one reason or another, don't, get, don't qualify or be treated as Canadian. And so I think we do need a, a closer examination of some of those issues. And think when you start thinking about that, think of the complexity, not just on that issue, and now think of what would happen if we had the CRTC suddenly say, we want to layer all those rules into what your YouTube feed looks like, or the kind of videos that you get to see on TikTok.
0: Uh, At the end of the day, is this more about that copyright or is it about controlling the content that each individual user puts up? Maybe preventing hate, that sort of thing.
7: Yeah, so it's not about that kind of hate speech or other forms of illegal speech. That is likely to be a separate piece of legislation that I have to tell you is likely to raise its own series of concerns. because Mm -hmm. The minister has talked about mandated takedowns and website blocking and the creation of a new social media regulator. So I think we're going to be back discussing that bill whenever it comes now, I think this is, this is just a case of the government wildly overstepping in terms of saying we want to regulate and just being, I think we're just really out of step with where Canadians are at on this issue, which is, sure, we need to have some effective regulation. I wish the government would have effective regulation for how my data gets used, uh, but don't, mm. be, don't, don't get into the business of regulating people's speech or what they see in their feeds.
0: Michael Geis with us, law professor with the University of Ottawa and Canada Research Chair in Internet and e commerce law. Michael, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well.
7: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Enough of the guests. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. I remember Liberal Premier Dalton McGuinty saying back in the old days he was not interested in building any more highways in Ontario and thinking, well, how do we grow? I remember politicians back in the 70s saying they were going to build high-speed trains between Montreal and Windsor. We're still waiting for that, too. So I guess the solution is to stop building roads until we can get Canada's transportation issue sorted out once and for all. Whether that's gas or diesel, electric or hydrogen, bike or trike, stagecoach or horseback. If you listen to U.S. President Joe Biden's infrastructure plans, it mentions everything ours doesn't like building roads and bridges and other transportation corridors to get America moving again. Of course, there should be thorough study and debate, but we need expansion of our transportation systems, and that includes roads and highways, as well as mass public transportation. Canada is not getting any smaller. And if COVID-19 has taught us anything, nobody wants to be stacked up like cordwood in a country as vast as ours, nor do we need to be to be environmentally conscious. I'm tired of government telling me what they're not going to do as opposed to what they are going to do and how. After all, where are we going to drive all of the electric vehicles we are subsidizing in major auto plants across the province if there are not enough safe roads to drive them on? I'm Scott Thompson. All right, let's bring in Dan McTagg, President of the Canadians for Affordable Energy. Couple of issues. He's also a former Liberal MP. Couple of issues I want to talk about with Dan. Uh, obviously the looming, uh, showdown as the Mich- uh, Michigan governor, uh, continues to order Line 5 pipeline, uh, shut down. Also, uh, Ottawa stepping in to evaluate Ontario's Highway 413 plan. Are we ever going to build another highway in Ontario? Or are we just going to wait until, you know, like electric drones come and pick us up and take us wherever we need to go. Uh, Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. (laughs) Beam me up, Scotty. (laughs) Exactly. So is highway a bad word?
4: Yes, it is a bad word. Anything that moves vehicles, war on on vehicles, it doesn't matter if they're electric vehicles or fossil fuel vehicles, internal combustion engines. By the way, most engines less use less uh, emissions than uh, a leaf blower but I'll I digress yes there is this idea and a very small minority of people who are absolutely can, you know can dedicated to the idea of no progress and somehow not taking into account the fact that our population is growing 410,000 new Canadians are going to show up uh and that uh, we can simply do uh, Maybe we can build subway lines uh, from Vancouver all the way out to, uh, to Halifax, perhaps even uh, underwater, all the way to St. John's, uh, uh, Newfoundland. But the reality is that uh, cars are important, roads are important, and our infrastructure uh, is really relying on planning that was done in the 1920s. Uh, we've really got to modernize our thinking. Uh, after 100 years, the car is not going away, and folks, need is fossil fuels or pipelines.
0: Uh, I remember uh, then Premier Dalton mcguinney this is back in the old days, like 20 years ago, him saying, uh, we're not interested in building any more roads. And I wondered, right, well, how are we going to, we're growing, how are we going to handle all this? And really what we've seen over time is they're not doing anything. Uh, I remember the days of high-speed rail between Montreal and, and Windsor. That's not, you know, that never happened. So it seems that they're constantly telling us what they're not going to do, but they're not really coming up with, alternatives and and again as you mentioned canada's expanding we bring in tons of immigrants uh every single year simply to to meet the demand of this growing country uh are i don't think people want to continually be stacked up like cordwood in toronto in condos especially in a post-covid-19 world so wh- how do these communities grow if there's no transportation in place <laughs>
4: Well, it's grandstanding by uh, by politicians, but more importantly, it's not taking into consideration. Uh,
0: Did we lose Dan? Danny? you there? No. I'm, Absolutely. Oh.
4: <laughs> okay, yeah. sorry,
0: repeat what you just said, Dan, because we lost yeah. you there for a second.
4: Yeah, no, I'm just by the uh, QEW here, so that's probably why uh, maybe one of the uh, cell phone towers uh, decided to c- pack it in. Look, uh, grandstanding by uh, politicians aside, the reality is that these things are going to be needed in the years to come. And whether we like it or not, uh, we can't wish these things away. And uh, uh, building roads, building infrastructure is part and parcel of how we built a nation. If it weren't for that, we wouldn't be a nation. And we certainly wouldn't be able to attract investments and people from all around the world to make this an even better place. Look, uh, take a flight whenever we have that ability to do that again in Canada. Fly from here all the way up to Vancouver, from here to Halifax, look out the window, and you'll see how much arable land we have. This idea that we have to stack each other one on top of the other is absolutely maddening and uh, mind-boggling. But again, some people get away with it because there's a small minority, maybe 5-10% of people who are very activist. And it's for those people, uh, the greasy, you know, the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the squeaky wheel gets the oil uh, that we have politicians bending over backwards, municipally, provincially, and federally. I think the vast majority of us are driving. So we need to get around have to understand it's time for pushback. We need to talk and listen to representatives that have our long-term interests at heart, not the short-term interests of those who, as frankly, at the end of the day, it's all about nimbyism.
0: Well, it's it's like a conflicting message. It's almost like listening to Nassie in the vaccine orders. Like You know, we have just spent... A bazillion dollars on two massive electric vehicle car plants, and that whatever supports that in Ontario, in Oakville and Ingersoll, they're they're going to be mass producing electric vehicles. And everybody was jumping up and down. What are we going to drive these on? Bike paths, <laughs> scooters,
4: uh, you know, take a walk. I don't know. It's it's unfortunate that there's such a massive conflict out there, but you know, many companies just roll over and say, you know, what the heck, give in give these green organizations a couple hundred thousand bucks to shut them up, to buy a, you know an indulgence, uh, to buy a few more years of uh, peace and tranquility. Now, look, we have a number of organizations out there. Um, the funniest one, of course, is the one that the Hamilton Council fell, uh, hook, line, sinker for the idea that you can shut down natural gas plants and rely on unreliable renewals like solar and wind to make up the bulk of hydro that you need. It's, it's totally ridiculous, and when you think about it, Uh, and you give us some thought, the folks that are advocating these things are the same ones who were advocating in favour of natural gas plants just a few years ago. I know I digress, but I see a lot of this on the municipal side and on the provincial and federal sides, uh, where you have one particular group that uh, really has uh, the attention uh, of of policymakers. That's unfortunate, because at the end of all of this, it's really anti-population. It's very much uh, against progress.
0: All right, a few minutes left. I can't let you go without asking about Line 5. Give us an update there. Where is this going?
4: Well, as of next Wednesday, uh, Enbridge will be operating a pipeline illegally uh, for which the state of Michigan has said no more. Uh, obviously, it's going to wind up in the courts. Uh, it may not be next week, it may not be next month, maybe next year, but sooner or later, that pipeline is going to have to close. And unfortunately, we don't have a backup plan. We would have had the energy pipeline been built. By the way, that pipeline exists right now. It delivers still a lot of natural gas, uh, gas that we don't buy from the United States or other jurisdictions. But uh, we are very close to a point where we could lose probably a two-thirds of our supply of fuel for all of Ontario. And that means gasoline, diesel, that means uh, uh, aviation fuel uh, for both Hamilton and uh, Toronto airports. So it's a pretty grim and very serious situation, may not happen next week. Uh, But boy, oh, boy, are we ever, uh, you know, casting uh, a chance to the wind by simply, uh, you know, shrugging our shoulders and saying, who cares? Don't worry about it. If it happens, uh, your economy in eastern Canada especially shuts down. Oh, by the way, uh, forget about uh, propane uh, barbecues uh, this summer. There won't be enough propane to go around.
0: So is anybody in the U.S. cranky about this? Uh, People in Michigan upset about this?
4: Well, there, I think half the people in Michigan are upset by it. Uh, those who aren't subscribing to uh, the climate hysteria and those who believe that this pipeline is somehow magically going to rupture and send a lot of oil into the uh, Straits of Mackinac, which, of course, separates Huron from Michigan. Uh, so they have a, you know an argument that says, hey, this could rupture, but this is 68 years without an incident. Uh, it's now, of course, uh, uh, not lost on smart people that uh, Enbridge is prepared to build a tunnel well under these straits in order to get these two pipes to to go through. These pipes have the thickest gauge of any pipeline in the world. So there's a good reason why they haven't leaked. They've taken extraordinary precautions, but that isn't good enough for the climate uh, uh, catastrophists. Uh, They want this thing shut down. And with it, half of Michigan's propane, uh, a good amount of its oil, and of course, uh, neighboring states like Ohio and Pennsylvania are really ticked with Michigan. But uh, that probably won't matter. The Biden administration doesn't really care uh and of course the irony for the trudeau government is that it loves killing pipelines now that one's about to be killed on it it finds itself having to say this is this is non-negotiable well i'm sorry there's no expression you can't suck and blow at the same time
0: is the prime minister offering any sort of uh resolve here is he is he offering any sort of argument any sort of debate
4: well we have the 1977 treaty that says you can't do these things unilaterally so that's a pretty important uh, factor but you know the biden administration also has uh, evidence from its own department that keystone should never have been cancelled it checked all the boxes when it came to the highest tests uh, use for any pipeline in the world and yet he cancelled that as well so i don't think it's a strong assurance at the end of the day if michigan wants to proceed with this i don't think the biden administration is going to stand its way remember governor gretchen whitmer is the vice president of the democratic party Uh, So she carries a lot of weight. And uh, among the climate folks uh, who supported the Democratic Party quite heavily, uh, you know, this would be certainly a a victory for them. And it would uh, reinforce the Democrats uh, desire to have that uh, big green reset. Uh, Call it what it is, a massive increase in the price of energy for Americans. And boy, get the popcorn ready for that, because unlike Canadians, Americans aren't going to simply uh, roll over and die.
0: When would this all come to pass? By the time the rubber hits the road here, when will they shut it down?
4: Any time anytime after next Wednesday uh, would be the time. Of course, there will be uh, there is a court order uh, that would be required. Uh, Enbridge is saying uh, the state doesn't have that authority. Ottawa is saying they might invoke the treaty, but uh, the bigger issue is you know the anti-pipeline uh, lobby right now is so strong uh, that it's likely this could suffer. My my guess case guest scenario would be we could see this uh, shut down uh, sometime this year uh it won't happen next week it's not likely to happen next month uh but i think anytime in 2021 it's uh, better than 50 50 chance and uh that means uh, contingencies like using uh, ships on the great lakes would be limited by the fact that uh, we shut the great lakes down for half of the year or a third of the year uh and of course uh, if we're talking about restrictions and cutbacks uh and uh Shortages of diesel uh, that makes uh, moving things by truck and train a little bit more difficult so uh, all of the options that are out there aren't exactly viable uh, and they would take several you know several years to to implement not just energies but the reversal of line nine pipeline which which in which case we bring in saudi oil or oil from around the world as opposed to being able to use our own the fact is canada's paying itself into a corner we've relied on the americans we've provided them energy independence. But it looks like that's no longer an issue now. Uh, we should have a pipeline going from east to west in this country. But unfortunately, you have uh, a number of NDP, uh, Green and Liberal uh, federal politicians in this country, many of them in uh, your listening area, who voted heavily against uh, having such a thing. And so uh, consumers are going to have to suffer. But eventually, they will get around. They're also voters. And uh, I suspect that when this does come to pass, and it will come to pass one way or another sooner or later, they're going to line some of these politicians up on the 30-yard line and punt them right to the end zone.
0: Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, talking about Line 5 shutting down and why we don't build any more highways. Uh, It is 158. Thanks, Dan, as always. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Have a good day.